it is a privilege to be here this morning. Uh, John had explained that uh, there's been some deaths in your congregation or extended family, uh, people in hospice, and uh, just it's hard to deal with. It's, uh, it's really hard to deal with. And, uh, you know, we know it's part of life, but it's, it seems to be easier to take when it's part of somebody else's life and not ours. And it can be very hard as a Christian because there's just so many things we have to deal with. You know, we have our own sin-cursed bodies that we're dealing with that are decaying. Um, Satan and the world are against us. There's just many things we need to do and not do, and we fail continuously, and, you know, we sin all the time, and we can't seem to stop, and every day we fall short of the glory of God. We have physical problems and relationship problems and work problems and financial problems and car problems and, yes, uh, people in our lives who are dying and maybe at times we're thinking, man, is this worth it or when will this ever come to the end? You know, I mean, this is a hard life. And it is. It's a hard life. That's why the scriptures say it is through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It's not a stroll uh, to the heavenly gates. It is a, it's a pretty grueling climb. William Dreyer, minister of the gospel in Chesham, England, wrote to believers about the struggles they face in life, and he gave them this encouragement. Oh, poor soul, this is all the hell that you shall ever have, therefore be of good cheer. Here you have your bad things, your good things are yet to come. Here you have your bitter things, but your sweet things are yet to come. Here you have your prison, but your palace is yet to come. Here you have your rags, your royal robes are yet to come. Here you have your sorrow, your joy is yet to come. Here you have your hell, your heaven is yet to come. After the cup of affliction comes the cup of salvation. The sweetness of the crown which shall be enjoyed will make amends for the bitterness of the cross which was endured. Oh, sirs, under the greatest troubles lie your greatest treasures. Patience for sorrow shall reap a golden crop of joy in heaven. Those who sow holiness in the seed time of their lives shall reap happiness in the harvest of eternity. Oh, sirs, never think to have an end of your sorrow until there is an end of your sin. The apostle tells us our light affliction, which is for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. A grain of affliction works a weight of glory. Oh, what a short moment of pain works to an eternity of pleasures. Therefore, saints, be of good cheer. There is comfort for you. Your best days are yet to come. You are subjects who are beloved entirely, cordially, infinitely, with an undying love, end quote. Isn't that great? It's like, let's go home. I mean, it's just like, I want that. And you know what? If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have that. That is true. And so what I want to do this morning is take you to a very well-known parable. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 16. It is a parable that only appears in Luke's gospel, 
Uh, and just for a little bit of in, intel, parables are true-to-life stories. They're unlike allegories. Allegories are not true to life. They, they can happen. There's things in there that, that don't ever happen. A parable is a story that, though fictitious, is true to life. And so this is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which uh, a lot of us know. And you're thinking, man, we're going to look at that for heaven. Well, the parable teaches us about heaven and hell, and riches, and poverty, and loving, and hating, and a host of other practical truths. Now, the main point of the parable is not heaven. The main point of the parable is that your riches, your possessions, your fame, position in this world do not determine whether or not you're going to go to heaven. The Jews at that time believed in what was called retribution theology. So this is how they saw it. They would look at people and say, hey, look at that person over there. They've got a lot of money. Well, since God is the one who blesses us and God is the one who gives us money, God must really like them because he's given them a lot of money. Therefore, they're going to heaven. And when they would see people who were suffering and people who were hurting, they would say, oh, look at that poor person over there. They must have sinned or their parents must have sinned and that's why they're suffering and they must be cursed and so they're probably on their way to hell. And that's how they saw things. In this parable, Jesus corrects that. He tries to fix that false notion because in the parable, when you look at it, the poor man is you know, afflicted, he's sick, he's rejected, he's starving in this life. Um, the average Jew would think, oh, that person is cursed of God. Surprisingly, he ends up in heaven. Of course, the rich man ends up in hell. And there's many of these contrasts in this parable. But what's interesting is Lazarus doesn't just end up in heaven. He, lives, he ends up in exalted glory in heaven. And this is the encouraging thing. Jesus is fixing the false perception that riches, position, and fame are a shoe-in to get to heaven. No, it's faith in him that's the shoe-in. He wants the Jews and us to realize you can't buy your way to heaven. Your social status in the world is not going to get you there. In fact, even if you're on the lowest of the lowest social rung and you're dirt poor and you're covered with sores and you're naked and you're laying in the ditch and the dogs are licking your wounds, you may be in heaven. And not just heaven, but exalted in heaven. And so look in your Bibles at Luke chapter 16. I'm going to read the whole parable, and then we're just going to go through this parable and see what it can teach us about the glories of heaven. This is what the Word of God says. Now, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores and longing to be fed, with the crumbs that were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Well, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember 
that during your life you've received your good things and likewise Lazarus' bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they may not come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Pray with me and we'll get into this parable. Father, we just ask you to help us understand some things in this parable about heaven that could be an encouragement to us, especially to those who are hurting, especially to those who are suffering trial and maybe have continued to suffer trial for a long time and their hearts are weak and weary and They've taken maybe their eyes off the things above and placed them on the things of this world where it is so sin-cursed and messed up. They've just kind of lost, lost perspective. So I pray that as we consider heaven and its glories, that, Father, we would be encouraged, that we would have hope for the future, that we would realize that no matter what this life throws at us, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected from the dead, we have the hope of eternal life and glories everlasting. So, Father, help us to learn that lesson by your Spirit. Work in each of our hearts through your word for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so skipping over much of what the parable says, I think I preached five sermons out of this parable. Um, I want you to consider seven different realities of heaven. We're going to extract six directly from the text, and then I'm going to throw in one for good measure, and you'll see why at the end. So that you who know Jesus Christ as your Savior will have a good hope, and do what the Scriptures say. Keep your thoughts fixed on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, and that those of you who do not know Jesus as your Savior might be tempted to place your faith in him. The first thing we learn here is your death will open heaven's gates to you. Look at Luke 16, 22, where we read, now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. There you are, you know, in your hospital bed, um, loved ones uh, with concerned faces are, are crowded around you. Um, they're, they're praying, they're talking in hushed tones. The doctor comes in and says, you know, it's only a matter of time, many, maybe minutes or a few hours, uh, but it's going to be very close. You're about ready to shed your outer man. You're, you've, you're all wired up, you're drugged. And there you lie, incapacitated and sedated. Your heart slows, your breathing stops then your heart stops and those standing around your bed begin to cry and they begin to kiss your hand and kiss your forehead and to whisper sweet words of love to your corpse, but you're not there anymore. 
You're no longer, they're no longer looking at you. They're just looking at the vehicle, the temporary earthly shell that you got around in when you were on earth, when your soul was fused to your decaying outer man. Now your soul is set free from that. Immediately you awake in the spiritual realm. Your mind is racing with perfect efficiency. Your, your senses are keener than they've ever been on earth. No part of you hurts. No part of you aches. You don't suffer in any way like you did on earth. Many of the things not clear in this world are always just like, well, no, duh. It just seems so clear to you now. It's like, this is true. I, I didn't believe in Jesus in vain. All, all the stuff I believe by faith all of my life, it's real. <laughs> just like the Bible said. You see your loved ones, but they are of little consequence to you now. You're not thinking of earth below, but heaven above. You're not thinking of doing yard work or shopping or surfing the internet or watching TV, but you want to know about heaven. Your mind is now directed to your eternal home, the place you believed existed by faith, but now are experiencing for the first time. Isaac Watts wrote, Sin, my worst enemy before, shall vex my eyes and ears no more. My inward foes shall all be slain, nor Satan break my peace again. Then shall I see and hear and know all I desire or wish below, and every power find sweet employ in that eternal world of joy. Thomas Watson said, Death shall stop the bottle of tears for the believer's day. His dying day is his ascension day into glory. Believer, glory is waiting for you when you die, but that's not all. Look again, you will have angels as guides. Look at verse 22, that Lazarus was carried away by the angels. Now, does this mean that every single believer is going to have an, es an angelic escort when they die? I don't know. It's a one-of-a-kind verse, so you don't want to draw a hard line and make a doctrine on this. We know from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, that all angels are ministering spirit sent out to render service to the sake of those who will inherit eternal life. The Bible says there are thousands upon ten thousands and myriads of myriads of angels, and they all serve believers. We see them throughout the Bible serving the saints and bringing messages and giving warnings and feeding and protecting and helping and fighting and rescuing people from prison and fetching souls from the four corners of the earth. And yet, we don't see them, but they're around do you think there's any in here? I'm sure there are. They're everywhere, serving the saints. And they don't look for glory. They do it invisibly. But God says they're there, and they're serving us. Angels, those mighty, sinless, holy beings, serving sinners saved by grace. Serving you. Serving me. It's enough to kind of make you blush, isn't it? To think that those holy creatures have to watch us live such beggarly lives for the Lord. You know, for, for him who deserves to be loved with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might, and they're watching us. You know, they probably say, man, 
you get to heaven, it's like, Jack, what was wrong with you? It's like, man, how you kept, how come you kept sinning? You know what the Bible said? You had the Holy Spirit. I mean, what's the deal? It's like, I don't know. I was just weak. I just in this sin-cursed body. I just, man, I just caved in all the time. I just blew it. It's like, so tell me about that. You know, I mean, that's that's going to be a marvel to them. I'm sure. Just be ready to answer those questions. Are you saved by grace? If so, angels are serving you. Jesus, speaking of believers as little ones, in Matthew 18.10 says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, with reference to believers, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Again, this is really the only text could refer to guardian angels here. It, Jesus says, their angels, as if angels are assigned to you. Believer, the moment you pass from this life, you may open your eyes and there may be a friend or friends there who have seen you, watched over you, and served you all of your life. And they're saying, welcome, friend. I was assigned to you all of your life. Let's go see the king. Angels will guide you, but that is not all. Third, you will be exalted for your humility on earth. Look again at verse 22, and notice another little gem here. Lazarus was carried to Abraham's bosom. Abraham? You mean like Abraham, the father of faith, Abraham, the most revered of Old Testament, uh, Old Testament believers, Abraham, the one who left all to follow God's call in his life, Abraham, the one who lifted up the knife to sacrifice his only son whom he loved, the, the son of promise, that Abraham, the Abraham, the one that God made an everlasting covenant with, saying, in your seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Yes, that very same Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, alive in heaven, and next to him, the poor, despised beggar, Lazarus. Look, someone says, there's that man, that poor man who was destitute and neglected and sickly and outcast and defiled by dogs and rejected by men. And he's sitting next to Abraham. Why? Because he was rich? No. Because he had position? No. Because he was powerful in the world? Famous? No. Because he humbled himself before God. Repented of his sins. Put his faith in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why. Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James says in James chapter 4, verse 10, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 6, speaking to young men, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in the proper time. Believer, 
Have you struggled to humble yourself? And maybe you've tried to humble yourself and you've labored to put pride to death and you've laid yourself low so that others could walk on you and you've tried to turn the other cheek and gone the extra mile and you've refused to assert your rights and said nothing in your defense and bore the blame unjustly and given credit to God and to others rather than take it for yourself. If that's you, prepared to be exalted. Prepare to have Jesus say to you, walk past these earthly kings and great CEOs and military generals and massive politicians and world-famous actors and come sit next to me. You just see that faithful housewife who gave herself to love her husband and train her children That woman who humbly cooked and cleaned and changed diapers and never wrote a book and never spoke in public and never was a famous anything, just faithful to be a faithful wife and see her now exalted next to the king of kings. God's way of rewarding has nothing to do with the earth's way. Faithfulness and love to him and humility are what he exalts. Jesus says this in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, as he's writing the letters to the churches. He, you know, he has those, those little statements uh, kind of encouraging and condemning, and some of them he gives little promises. And he says this, and it's, it's so radical. It just, it, I don't know about you, but when I say this, it just makes me want to put my head down in shame. It's like hard to even believe. But this is what the word of God says. He who overcomes, and that's anybody who places their faith in Jesus Christ. He who overcomes, insert your name if you know Jesus. I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Can you even like get a grip on that one? All sinful as you are, all messed up as you are, all loserish as we all are. But God takes away all of your sin, all of your guilt, all of your unrighteousness, and he imputes, he gives to you, he reckons to you the perfect righteousness of Christ. And God says, come Sit down with my son on his throne. I mean, that is amazing. The humble in this world will be exalted, but that's not all. You will enjoy sweet fellowship with the saints. Look one more time at verse 22. And notice that Lazarus was carried away to Abraham, another believer. In heaven, you will have fellowship with other believers. Some... And I don't know why this is. They teach that when we get to heaven, God, you know, basically gives us a lobotomy. I mean, he basically erases our memory and, you know, wipes our hard drive. And so we kind of show up all like, who are you? You know, no, that's not how it is. What folly is that? Of course, you're going to remember people in heaven. You're going to know your loved ones who have gone before you. You're going to meet others who you've read about in the Bible and history. In verse 25, Abraham says to the rich man, child, remember. And the rich man remembers he has brothers. He remembers they're on earth. He remembers they don't know the Lord. I mean, 
this is not, their, their minds aren't wiped clean. You will talk and you will share testimonies and the deeds you did by God's grace and Christ's faithfulness to you. I mean, it's going to be great. Wouldn't it be great to just talk to the angels and talk to other people and how did you come to the Lord? And you could just listen to testimonies and you could share your testimony and just go to the next person and talk to everybody for a thousand years and never grow old. You just, eternal, you're in a body fit for eternity, a mind that is perfect. You remember everything. And you will have fellowship with angels, those beings that are just found through the scriptures, but we just aren't told a lot about them. You're going you're gonna to talk to loved ones who have passed into glory, who are going to be waiting for you when you arrive, and you will know them, and you will visit with them, and you will share your testimonies, and they will share yours, There's their testimony with you. Deeds of your life and the providence of God and how God was working. It's going to be amazing. C.H. Spurgeon, in a sermon entitled Christ Triumphant, mused about what it would be like as Christ reigns in heavenly triumph, saying, quote, I see a great mass of his people streaming in. The apostles are first to arrive in one goodly fellowship, singing praises to their Lord, and then a long array of those who through cruel mockings and blood, through flame and sword, have followed their master. These are those of whom the world was not worthy, the brightest among the stars of heaven. Regard also the mighty preachers and confessors of the faith, Chrysostom, Athanasius, Augustine, and the like. And let your eye run along the glittering ranks until you come to the days of the Reformation. I see in the midst of the squadron Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, the three holy brothers. And then I see a number that no man can number converted to God through these mighty reformers. And looking down to our own time, I see the stream broader and wider. For many are the soldiers who have in the last times entered into the master's triumph. For every soldier is a trophy. Every warrior in Christ's army is another proof of his power to save and his victory over death and hell, end quote. Don't doubt it. You're going to have great fellowship when you get to heaven, and it's never going to end. But that's not all. Fifth, you're going to be comforted. You're going to be comforted. Look towards the end of verse 25. After Abraham tells the rich man he has already received all the good he has ever received, the Puritans like to say this, believer, remember, as a believer, you're going to receive all the bad you will ever receive in this life only. And then eternal glory. An unbeliever, you need to know you're going to receive all the good you will ever receive in this life only. And then eternal misery. It puts things into perspective, doesn't it? He says, likewise, Lazarus, bad things in the end of verse 25. Now he is being, notice, comforted here. You, know, you ask yourself, is this life a burden to you, believer? Do you find yourself, you know, bowed down with troubles and cares? And, you know, is your righteous soul tormented like Lot's when he was living in Sodom? Do you struggle financially and relationships bring you pain? And are you plagued with a decaying body? And you love Advil more than more? I do. I just fell through my kitchen ceiling, putting some lights in the attic. My legs all beat up, and Advil's wonderful. Be of good cheer. Soon, 
you will be comforted forever. In heaven, you will never be sick, never hungry, never grow weary ever again. In heaven, you will have peace and rest, and the evils which vex you in this life will be gone forever. Thomas More wrote, joy of the desolate, light of the straying, hope of the penitent, fadeless and pure. Here speaks the comforter, tenderly saying, earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot cure. Do not doubt it. Peace, rest, mercy, comfort is waiting for you in heaven. But that's not all. You will be protected from evil and sin. In this world, the godly are often neglected. They're oppressed. They're persecuted by the rich and powerful who oppose them. And this is what Abraham is referring to when he says to the rich man in verse 25 that during your life you received the good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. The rich man neglected and shamed Lazarus. You know, when you look at the parable, if we had more time, it says, and the Lazarus was, you know, put, the word is really thrown down. Somebody didn't want to hassle with Lazarus because, you know, because the dogs were able to lick his wounds, he was pretty much unclothed and they threw him down at the rich man's gate. So the rich man, then every time he left his house, would have to go by Lazarus who was laying there at the gate dying and he wouldn't help him. Completely merciless, just Cold, cold towards the needs of this man outside of his gate. And the rich man neglected and shamed Lazarus on earth, even though he was very prosperous and had plenty of resources to help him. And sometimes we wonder about this as believers, don't we? We're kind of like the psalmist. Remember Psalm 73, where the psalmist is kind of irritated Because he's trying to do everything right, and yet it seems the wicked are prospering, and he's suffering for doing what is right. He says this in Psalm 73, verse 3. I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. And they are not troubled like other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Their pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. (coughs) Think about that. I mean, that's how we see it sometimes. You, know, you see all the people on the magazines that go, oh, yeah, look at all the money, look at all the fame. They're miserable. It's propaganda. Does the prosperity of the wicked sometimes tempt you to stumble? You kind of wish you could be like them. I mean, the psalmist, that's what happened to him, man. He, he got, took his eyes off the Lord, put it on the prosperous wicked, and he started envying them. He says in verses 13 and 14, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. I mean, I'm doing what's right, and I'm getting beat up for it. And they're doing what's wrong, and look at them. They're cheating on their taxes and swindling their customers, and, man, they're driving around nice cars, and they're living in luxury, and I'm trying to do what's right, and I'm just suffering. He's kind of having a spiritual pout here. I mean, could all your strivings after holiness be in vain? Well, the psalmist goes on to say in verse 17 that he had all of these thoughts 
until he came into the sanctuary of God and perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. He goes, okay, okay, I don't want to be like that. Believer, in heaven, you will experience no oppression, no persecution, no evil. Sin will be locked out of heaven forever. I mean, Abraham tells the rich man, during your life, you received good, rich man. And likewise, Lazarus, bad things. And look at verse 26. Abraham replies to the rich man, between us and you, there is a great chasm fix, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and none may cross over from there to us. It is fixed. Evil is locked out. You cannot cross over. At that time, there was this yawning gulf between the believing and unbelieving souls that at that time were all in what was called Sheol or the grave. There's like multiple compartments if you do a study on it where some demons are trapped in there and pits of darkness just reserved for destruction and on and on. But the chasm was a protection. It was a protection to keep evil out and the righteous in. You don't need to lock your doors in heaven. You don't need to keep your eye on your valuables or carry pepper mace or you know, get a concealed carry permit to protect yourself. You're not going to get mugged. You're not going to get swindled. You're not going to get robbed. No one will ever harm you. Everybody's going to be perfectly righteous in heaven. And imagine, if you can, not craving evil or desire to ever sin again. I can't even like, that is just not even on my radar. Ever have an evil thought? Ever have a little jealous, a little envious, a little anger, a little bit of impatience, a little worry, a little anxiety? Nothing. Nothing. Sinless. When you come to Christ in this life, you are free from the power of sin. Sin no longer has dominion over you, but you're not released from its presence yet. You're released from its eternal consequence, but it's still here. We still have sin-cursed bodies. We live in a sin-cursed world, and we have sin-cursed hearts, and we're hanging around sin-cursed people, and we're just sins everywhere. But in heaven, you're going to be completely removed from that, delivered from the presence and the temporary consequences of sin. And all your life, you're battling Satan, you're battling sin, and you're battling the flesh, you're battling temptations around you. And think of those sins you have confessed to the Lord a thousand times. Those ones you've said, Lord, I am back again. I am impatient, I've been anxious, I'm this, I'm that. And you know that if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But man, you just wish you just wouldn't have to do it again. But you have to keep coming back because you are a sinner. You're a big sinner. We all are. Paul spoke of this when he said in Romans 7, the things I want to do, I don't do. I do the very things I hate. A wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then remember his answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. And then he goes into chapter 8 and says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wow. 
At that time, there was a certain tribe of punished, that punished murderers in a very interesting way. When Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death, what, what he's talking about here is he's referring to this tribe. So if you killed somebody and you were caught and convicted, they would take the corpse of the person you killed and they would lash it to you face to face, mouth to mouth, arm to arm, body to body, and they just lay you on the ground. And the corpse would start rotting. You'd breathe in the decay and it would kill you. The person you killed would kill you. And Paul pictures his sin-cursed body as this corpse lashed to him, and he can't get away. It's like, wretched man that I am, I cannot stop sinning. But deliverance is coming. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 to 57, right? The text right before the one John preached on, I hear. Um, Paul gives this solution but when this imperishable, when this perishable, speaking of our perishable mortal body, will have put on the imperishable, a glorified body, and this mortal, our perishable body, will put on the immortality, then will come, come the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus. Notice Jesus is always the victor. He's the one who gets us victory. You place your faith in Jesus, you win. Your fleshly body, which is Satan's target in sin's stronghold in this life, will be left behind at death, resurrected and glorified and fit for eternity. Fixed. But that's not all. There's one other thing. I couldn't really extract it from the text directly, but I'm going to extract it from the parable's author you will see Jesus. You will see Jesus. Job, the oldest book of the Bible, speaks of death with great hopeful anticipation. And Job says this, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at last he will take his stand on the earth even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. Job says, man, I'm going to die. My body's going to rot. But I am going to see my Redeemer. Job loved the Lord, his Redeemer. He trusted his life to the promise given to Adam and Eve that the woman's seed would crush the serpent's head. He believed in life after death. He longed to be with the Lord, to see his Redeemer with his own spiritual eyes after he died. I just want to ask you, do you feel that way, believer? Are, are your eyes all on the things of this world, all the crud and the junk and the sin and the trials and the politics and the junk you see in the newspaper. I mean, you know, when you think about it, just read one newspaper and it's enough to just make you want to scream and run away and plug your ears. This is the whole world is just rife with corruption. I like what J.C. Ryle said. If if you want to know what's going on in the world, just stick me in the closet with a candle and a Bible and I can tell you everything that's happening. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, now we are 
the children of God and has not appeared yet as what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. The great evangelist D.L. Moody said, when I get to heaven, I want to sit down and look at Jesus for a thousand years. And then I'm going to say, where's Paul? The psalmist in Psalm 73, verse 25, finally at the very end, after he works through all his envy and his jealousy and then he perceives therein, says, Whom have I in heaven but you, and beside you I desire nothing on earth? Any Raskusen wrote, The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not Gaze at glory, but on my king of grace, not at the crown he gives, but on his nail-pierced hand, the lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. You know that the death rate is still holding at 100%, right? You're going to die, and I'm going to die. You also know that you don't know when you're going to die. And you also know that when you die, you're going to face judgment. Now, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, he will have taken away all the sins away. All of that will be burned up. All of that will be covered in his blood. He will give you his perfect righteousness. So the only thing that will show up in heaven is you and all the deeds that you did in the power of the Spirit, obeying his word for his glory, and he will reward you for eternity, for what he did through you. Now that is just so, that's another hard one to grasp, isn't it? I am going to save you. I'm going to draw you to myself. I'm going to grant you repentance, give you faith, save you, transform you. I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to give you my word so you know what to do. And then after you've done everything by everything I've given you, then I'm going to reward you for what I did through you for all eternity. That's a good deal. That's a real good deal. And so what is the application of this? Well, if you're an unbeliever, I hope this tempts you to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus because this world is but a vapor. You are going to die. You will face judgment. And if you think you can postpone it and wait for another day, you just need to ask yourself, are you willing to trade just a drop of sinful pleasure for an eternity of wrath? Will you have Satan be your captain and sin as your compass and hell the port you are bound for because you don't want to submit to the Lord? You need to abandon ship. You need to swim to Christ who lived and died and rose again on your behalf and believe in Jesus and he will save you. He will transform you. He will forgive you. He will give you his righteousness. He will adopt you. He will sanctify you and redeem you and atone for you and all those things. And then you can have the hope of eternal life too. And believer, thoughts of heaven should cause you to strive to live a holy life now. Knowing that you are going to appear before the Lord. 1 John 3, 3 says, Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. There was a feminist philosopher. This, is, this gal is like anything but a Christian. Her name was Harriet Martineau. And she was talking to a Christian friend and she said this, quote, 
if I believed in immortality as you believe in it or as you profess to do, I should live a better life than you appear to live. I should strive more earnestly and bear more patiently. I do not think I should be troubled with fear or worried about any earthly burden. I think it would be all sunlight and joy if I believed as you do in eternal things, in resurrection and life beyond, in which all things will be made right. End quote. Whoa, what a rebuke from an unbeliever. If we truly believe in heaven like we should, it should make us better Christians. It should make us think of the things above. It should make us bold in sharing the gospel. It should make us have joy that no circumstance can take away from us because we know, hey, we may be losers and we may blow it, but hey, I'm saved and I'm on my way and everything's going to be fixed by Jesus eventually. Believer, knowing about heaven should move you to praise God. We, we oftentimes, we just don't think about heaven very much, and it really robs God of the praise he deserves. Spurgeon, in a sermon entitled The Hope of Future Bliss, said this, The vision of God, to see him face to face, to enter into heaven, and to see the righteous shining bright as the stars of the firmament, and best of all, to catch a glimpse of our eternal home. Ah, there he sits, to almost blaspheme for me to attempt to describe him, how infinitely far my poor words fall, fall below the mighty subject, but to behold God's face. I will not speak of the luster of those eyes, of the majesty of those lips that shall speak words of love and affection, but to behold his face. You who have dived into Godhead's deepest sea and have been lost in its immensity, you can tell a little of it. You naughty ones who have lived in heaven these thousand years, perhaps you know, but you cannot tell what it is to see his face. We must each of us go there. We must be clad with immortality. We must go above the blue sky and bathe in the river of life. We must outsoar the lightning and rise above the stars to know what it is to see God's face. Words cannot set it forth, end quote. Unless the Lord comes for us, we're going to die, and then we're going to see his face. You're going to open your eyes in perfect holiness without any sin, never to sin again. You may have an angelic escort. You will see the saints and angels. You will be escorted into the presence of your Savior. Do you ever, do you ever stop to think? You should do this one time. I encourage you to do this this week. When you're spending time with the Lord, just spend one of your quiet times and say, Lord, I'm going to spend this morning thinking about what it's going to be like the first time I meet you. Have you ever thought about that? You die, the angels escort you to some grand courtyard, and there you see a man walking towards you. He's not 300 feet tall. He's the perfect height, six foot four. He's walking towards you. He's got a smile on his face. And you just know, this is Jesus. And he's just smiling. And he's lifting up his arms. And he's coming towards you. This God who became a man 
and loved you to the point of death, even death on the cross, and forgave you all of your zillions of sins. And he's got that smiling face, and he's reaching out to you with perfect, unconditional, undying love. What are you going to do? What's going to happen? Do you ever think of that? You know, he comes closer and your first thought is, I just need to like fall on the ground and turn into liquid and melt into the pavers. You know, I just need to like, ah! And he says, no, friend. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have finally arrived at your home. Enter into the joy of my kingdom. Do not bow in shame, for you shall stand in my presence, blameless with great joy, and you will rule and reign with me in my kingdom forever. Then you will begin to experience the glories of heaven. Praise God. Pray with me. Father, it's, as Spurgeon said, so grand and so transcendent and so amazing to think about things that the scriptures give us very little intel on. We're thankful for the parable of the rich man and Lazarus because of the little bit that at least does teach us about heaven. Lord, forgive us for often being occupied by things destined to perish, not thinking of you enough, not thinking of eternity enough, not fixing our eyes on the things above enough. Lord, we want to have heavenly perspective. We want to long to be with Jesus. We long to see him. And though our sins make us cringe, our failures which are so regular and constant, make us just want to be ashamed. Yet he died to take care of all of that, to wash all of that away. Lord, if there is somebody here who doesn't know you yet, who either is deceived about their true spiritual condition or knows they have never repented and placed their faith, may they believe in Jesus now. May they receive the free gift of eternal life. For those of us who know you, may we think of heaven May we live holy lives as your ambassadors in this world until you bring us home. And may we praise you with all that is in us because you are rescuing us from this present evil age and the glories of heaven await us. Praise your name. We thank you. We love you and ask that you would help us to be faithful by your spirit, by your word, through all the means of grace you have given us so we can give you glory as you deserve. We pray this in Jesus' name.